So what we want to talk about today is standards of excellence or best practices in disaster medicine. And I'm, I tend to wander, and with all these cords, I may trip or fall or something. So uh, if we have a disaster here, those of you that were in the first session that know how to deal with it, that was more the didactic uh, part of it, come help me, please. Okay. Why best practices? Here's the one... Uh, cartoon that I like, and we, we showed this one in the last session too. Foreign aid, when you take money from the poor people in a rich country and give it to the rich people in a poor country. We know that that happens, and we, we hope that it won't continue to happen. Uh, wasting resources, I think we're not quite getting the very bottom part of that. Um, I'm not sure. Is anybody here a projector person? Because um, for some reason it's kind of cutting off the bottom of that, but what this says is this was a Central African dictator, one of the top 11 worst uh, dictators as determined by, by someone, uh, but he said, everything around here is financed by the French government. We ask the French for money, we get it, and waste it. So that is very commonly occurring in, uh, well, in missions in general, but also in disaster relief, and that's what we want to avoid happening. And um, hopefully we won't cut off too much of this. I'm just going to take a quick peek here and see. Is there something on the Zoom? There we go. So now there's our quote. Um, so best practices, we, we do them and we pursue them because they're right and they're truth. So we remember when Jesus turned the water into wine, he turned it into the best wine. It wasn't the cheap stuff in the screw cap bottle. It was the very best. And we need to avoid, you know, just good enough kind of thinking or it's better than what they have because we can do better and we can strive for excellence. And as Christians, as believers, we should be able to come into a disaster setting and do better than anyone else does. I was talking about this with a colleague yesterday that when we walk into a health cluster meeting with, with uh World Health Organization officials, when they see us coming, they should know these are competent people who are really good at doing what they do, and they do it better than anyone else. Because otherwise, if we do less than that, the world sees that also. And not only are we accountable to God for how we do what we do, but, but also this is our witness, our Christian testimony, and we can do um, better than that. Why me? Um, my name is Jim Lindgren. I'm a physician. Uh, my background is in emergency medicine, uh, internal medicine and peds, and have been uh, getting more and more involved um, somewhat unknowingly and now knowingly in disaster relief. And so we've got a couple pictures here. This was us kind of backpacking into Haiti in the early days and, and getting set up there. And so part of what we're going to talk about is being equipped and ready to go. And you'll see that we've got a bunch of stuff packed up here because we were self-contained, ready to take care of ourselves and not going to be part of the problem or another mouth to feed, part of the best practices. So again, here's a joke. Bear with me if you saw this before. The risks of disaster relief, that's what I looked like before I started doing disaster relief. And this is a recent x-ray of me. So there are risks. <clears throat> the objectives of this talk, we're going to review briefly just the disaster life cycle, talk about who should be involved and how to engage safely. Then we're going to go over the... Whoops, my, Wrong button there. Then we're going to go over what we call the MISTM grid, the maximum impact short-term uh, missions grid, and the seven standards of excellence, and we're going to apply them to the area of disaster relief. And that comes from my background as chairman of the U.S. Standards of Excellence in Short-Term Missions. 
And what you'll hear over and over is short-term missions commits a lot of errors and a lot of mistakes um, in what we do because we're not necessarily there understanding the culture and knowing all of that. So there's some uh, standards that we need to follow in that. Um, we're going to discuss a few disaster-specific areas of best practice and then focus on the need for safety and security for the teams that are going in. So this is the disaster life cycle. The disaster is this little spot right over here. Re uh, relief efforts come right after that. And uh, eventually we reconstruct, re rehabilitate, and try to get to that holistic wholeness. Prior to that, there's this preparedness and hopefully some mitigation that ta takes place, uh, maybe even some prevention so we can avoid disaster or at least be prepared when it happens. Uh, a simpler form is here where the little red splotch kind of at the top there is the disaster. We've got our response phase, recovery, and then hopefully mitigation and some preparedness. Disaster definition, the long one at the top from the Joint Commission for kind of hospital accrediting is that it's a natural or man-made event that suddenly or significantly disrupts the environment of care and treatment or increases demands for an organization's uh, services. A little shorter, an event that exceeds the capabilities of the response, or when you saw my x-ray, I need something really simple. The needs are greater than the resources. So that's by very definition what a disaster is. Now, how can we practice best practices when the definition of a disaster is that the needs are greater than the resources, right? So what do we do? How can we be excellent in the face of chaos? Because that's what disaster is. The initial disaster is chaos. So there's some key principles. Key number one is a good response comes from experience and preparation, part of that life cycle. So that, yeah, the disaster may have been unforeseen, but the fact that we might respond to it isn't. So we prepare for it in advance. Key number two, when possible, we plan in order to mitigate that. That's an if-then scenario. If this happens, then we will do this. So like pre-staging medics on a marathon course, you know, we have those aid stations there for a reason because we anticipate that maybe somebody around mile 20 or some of us around mile 6 might have problems and might need some, some help. We're having par value essential medicines in stock for deployment, which is what our organization, uh, Window of Hope, does so that we're ready to respond. And it's a little bit extra finances and a little bit extra work. Some things expire. you got to have things ready. But... That way, if the disaster happens tomorrow, we already have today what we will need for tomorrow. We don't have to scramble. Key number three, by having known standards in place ahead of time, we establish clear boundaries and guidelines once we're deployed into chaos. So we kind of know what our limits are, and we know how to kind of color inside of the lines. And by working through established partnerships and in collaboration with like-minded organizations and peers, we have common best practice standards in place before the incident. So when we deployed into Haiti, we went in the, the, the early days, uh, we went through known networks of people that could get us there and that we could link up with when we were there and that could put us to use. We didn't just show up and see what we could do. We actually worked through kind of a network uh, that was in, uh, in, established in place ahead of time, even though we'd never worked in Haiti before. We knew these organizations. And key number five, plan with an exit strategy and a succession plan in place. Otherwise, you get an early response, and then everybody leaves, and, and we haven't really done what we need to do. Hopefully, we're training local uh, healthcare workers to be able to take our 
place. In a situation like Haiti, where a lot of them were killed in the earthquakes when the hospitals collapsed, we need a little kind of a medium-term plan for how to redevelop that. So our goals to strive for, we don't want to create a second disaster with an unprepared team or if our team's not self-contained, right? That's why you saw those big backpacks behind us, because we had food to take care of ourselves for two weeks uh, should we not find any there. And then once we went in, because we went in through the DR, we bought a bunch more food there, and in fact we're able to bless a local ministry because we didn't need all of it in the end, um, but we weren't able to take care of our own needs. Um, because in the disaster, you may not have food or water or shelter or anything else. So you take the kind of things that you need to, to be self-contained. You don't want to take the wrong personnel or supplies uh, for needs on the field. And there are reports that are rampant and lots of things written about stuff that shows up in disaster zones. Containers full of stuff that just to go through it, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but just to go through it takes so many man hours um, and, and you find out that you know they have 60,000 urinary catheters, and what they really need are bandages or other things. Um, and what we're going to try to do is break this down into small segments. We're just going to try to initially achieve managed chaos. Right? It's not going to be great, but we're going to put together a plan that can manage the chaos. We're going to work together with local leadership as their hands extended. Right? If, uh, I don't know if anybody was in Gill's lecture that he just did on the peace uh, project that they work on through Saddleback Church, but, but his point is we don't work with the church, we work through the church. So nobody really knows who we are because it's their outreach. We give them all the tools and the logistics when we do our medical missions to be able to accomplish what they're not able to do, but the local community sees it as the church's outreach. They never know who we are, and that's the way we like it. The right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. They get all the they get all the glory. Um, the Lord gets glorified. We just help get the job done, and that, that should be our goal. We're going to improve hourly and daily while deployed. We're just going to get better. It's not going to be perfect at the beginning. We're going to utilize local resources, and we'll talk about how do we find the miracle in the house. How do you go to Haiti with everything you'll need to take care of 300,000 injured patients? You're not going to be able to do it on a commercial jet that takes you into Santo Domingo and the Dominican Republic. So you take what you need initially, and, and you work through the channels that you have, and then you look for God's provision of the miracle in the house, and we'll talk about that. Learn, adapt, and accept the inherent challenges that are there. It's not going to be perfect. If you're a perfectionist, type A personality like me, you need to learn that it's just going to be what it's going to be, and then you're going to work on doing that improvement like we talked about. And then work yourself out of a job. That's the exit strategy. With this in mind, the bottom here is very important to me. All efforts should be to create a sustainable, culturally appropriate, and indigenous program that utilizes local resources as its primary method of functioning. We can create a great program for ourselves if we just send tons and tons of teams in and get lots of television coverage and raise lots of money and charge team members to go on trips. We can develop a program like that, and then the local ministry can become dependent upon what we're doing. And ultimately what we want to do is create something that can be sustained without our presence there. And that should really be our goal in all of this. Um, not just in disaster relief, but really in, in terms of how we do short-term missions, which is near and dear to my heart. So we talked about different ways of, of uh, achieving managed chaos. The last cl uh, class we taught was more didactic and how we do all of the things in terms of uh, the medical care and, and that part of it. This is more on best practices 
and standards of excellence in doing that, but we'll use triage as, a, as an example of how to manage chaos because you come upon this disaster scene. You have all these patients that are there. Some of them are running around. Some of them are shouting. Some of them aren't moving. We talk about the mass system of triage, move, assess, sort, and send. So it's very easy to say, everyone that needs medical care, please go over to this area right here. And boom, you move all those people over. You know that those people can hear you, they can breathe, and they can walk. That means everything's working good enough that they probably don't need your care immediately. So you've kind of isolated those as the minimal category. Then what we're going to do is say, everybody else that can wave an arm or a leg or shout out to us, but you can't move, we'll go to help you. Maybe that's something very simple. Maybe it's a special needs person normally has a wheelchair that got knocked out of the wheelchair during an earthquake scenario. They're completely fine. Or maybe you see somebody that's there, they can't even hear you because it was an explosive event and their eardrums are perforated, but they're not significantly injured. But you'll find the others um, who aren't uh, responding immediately that really do have a life-threatening emergency you might be able to take care of. So there's the sort function. We go through, we assess airway, breathing, circulation, see what patients can respond to those initial early treatments, things like you know opening an airway, um, those type of settings, um, and we put those into that immediate category. The delayed are those that have some injuries. Maybe they have a fracture, uh, but they're neurovascularly intact. They're not hemorrhaging. Uh, we, can, we can take care of those a little bit later, and that becomes a delayed category. The minimal were those walking wounded we talked about, and we'll find some of those in that category um, that didn't run over to the green area. And then the expectant, those that are not likely to survive or they're already deceased. Ultimately, we're going to send them on. Maybe if we're in a true disaster environment, we are the facility that takes care of them. We'll treat and release who we can. We'll bed those that we need to. And those that are deceased, we have to come up with a plan for taking care of them. So this is just one simple method just in the triage process of you come upon this chaotic scene and there are methods and ways of, of creating managed chaos. It's never going to look perfect in those early days, um, but we can get better little by little. There is the, the whole coursework of the basic disaster life support and advanced disaster life support classes that you can look up uh, locations on the Internet, do some more of that didactic training. It's a three-day process to do both. It's very useful. You do some mock exercises and you get all the didactics. You want to work together. And we, we were working in conjunction with the military at uh, Killick um, Coast Guard Base. It's a Haitian Coast Guard Base um, in Port-au-Prince. And this sign uh, really struck me when I saw it, so I took this picture of it. And it says, if, if you read French, you can read the top part, but in English it says, our aim is to save the lives um, of, of these fantastic Haitian people in their dire hour of need. Um, we'll do that if we work together and fuse uh, all of our intentional efforts into one casualty machine. It's that simple. So they put this thing together just on a piece of white paper and put it next to this monument that was there. That was their mission statement. And it was enough that it, you know, it caught my attention, it caught my eye. So yeah, that's what we need to do. Just merge all of our efforts together into one machine uh, that can that can really do some some good here. So this was uh, some of the people that we were able to work with and uh, and do some interaction with. And I could bring them some medications when we figured out how to get them out of the warehouses. Uh, they helped my guide with some bedding and, and uh, some mattresses that he needed. Um, but you'll see here, we've got uh, 
a multi-military experience. So we've got people from the public health, from the Mexican Navy, from our U.S. Army, from the Colombian Army. We've got Navy men. We've got other um, um, gentlemen here, and I think he was also from the, uh, another arm of the Colombian response team, and then this crazy guy in the middle. Um, but everybody came together and pooled their resources, their knowledge base, and worked together to take care of those that were in need. And uh, friends in high places can help, so look for what you can offer and what you can get help from. This was another sign also at the, at the Killick base, and uh, uh, it's a little bit hard to read, but it's a, it says, Our aim is to save the lives of these fantastic Haitian people. Um, and it says that every day we will work to get 10% better. And that was their goal, was just to get better every day, little by little. So that's what we want to try to accomplish in, in what we're doing, is to just get better. Utilize local leaders and resources. So when you're in a dangerous situation, when you don't speak the local language, when you don't know how to get around the city, first of all, and now all of the, the routes that you would normally take are filled with debris and buildings that are knocked over and down power lines, you need a guy like my man Jude here who became my, my right hand there. Jude, if you can see, his arms are a little bigger than my arms. He uh, grew up not only in the ha- uh, streets of Haiti, but also spent a number of years on the streets of New York living in the projects in Brooklyn. He went back into, into Haiti. He speaks great English. He speaks uh, great Creole and French, but he also understands the streets. And he was a guy that could get us in and out of places and get us around the city and take care of it. Plus, he could also tell me things like, on the third or fourth day that I was driving there, once we, we got our vehicle, he was like, don't hit anybody or they'll pull you out of the car and they'll burn you to death. I was like, Jude, you either tell me that on the first day or don't ever tell me that. But don't tell me it on the third day because now I'm afraid of driving. Um, and we generally don't recommend that as a best practice, but it was the situation that uh, from Hertz, the only way we could get the vehicle. Um, so I had to drive it. But you want to use people on the ground that can help you. Without Jude, we would have had completely wasted efforts. Now we want to find the miracle in the house. Remember the, the story of the, the widow and the oil and the flour? And Elijah went in and said, hey, make me something to eat. And she's like, we don't really have anything. Well, make me something to eat. Because he knew God was going to provide the miracle. And you remember it didn't run out? Or the fishes and the loaves? That would be like, you know, the crowd that we have here, like downstairs, what, mealtime? And same thing that Jesus faced. And they were like, well, what do we have? Oh, we have a happy meal. You know, we have some fishes and loaves. And that was enough. So that's what we started with. We took in what we needed to for the first days. And then we worked the system and figured out how to access the local uh, Promess warehouse. And by the fifth day, could figure out how to get there. And they're loading $250,000 worth of medicines into our vehicle that we paid absolutely nothing for. So it was the first time in my life that I could go and, and get something back for all those tax dollars we pay that go to the United Nations and the World Health Organization. And so I, I was having fun because I felt like I was spending U.S. and French and German tax dollars and getting it into the hands of, of the, the people that were in need. So the miracle's in the house if you're called to be there and you're supposed to be there. Um, but we have to find it. And we have to know when we're supposed to go and when not to. And we need to know the risks, the physical risks, so these are, this wasn't the greatest picture, um, didn't have a lot of time for it, but the guest house uh, of a mission compound where we had people staying and where we experienced the 6.0 aftershock and had to 
get people out of the building, had structural issues that weren't able to be looked at right away. So we stayed right next to a window to be able to bail out if we needed to. That was our escape plan. But you need to know what are you putting your people, uh, if you're putting your people into harm's way. That's important to figure out. This was a, a detail, security detail for one of the, the leaders when this gentleman with a little mini 14 or whatever he has there told me to back up. I backed up. Um, but it, it lets you know that there are real risks in these uh, environments that you need to worry about. There's also the psychological risks. This child with an untreated fracture, an abrasion, overwhelming infection, where we were at when we first got there, we had no place to send this child, and all we had was oral antibiotics. You can't adequately take care of him, so you feel like his chances of recovery are very low without adequate facilities and treatments. Um, we didn't have that. And that was one of the things that prompted us to go and uh, to work with uh, other organizations to be able to figure out how do we share capacity and capabilities. And the psychological risks of seeing things. This was the only dignified funeral procession that we saw. There was a coffin in the back of this truck going out to the dumping areas where they took the bodies and they had the mass graves. And so are you taking people into that environment that can actually handle that to see you know, multiple dead bodies, overwhelming amount of trauma, um, are there health risks related to where you're going? Because there's lots of, you know, whether it be volcanic dust or, or debris, um, are they physically fit enough to do this or will they become a casualty as well? Um, we're going to transition from a little bit of this background now to go through a little bit of the uh, standards of excellence from short-term missions and we can see how it relates to what we do. And this is uh, just a bunch of history uh, that just tells you that the standards of excellence in short-term missions was a long process that involved 400 leaders and multiple years and revisions that went into making the seven standards that we'll go over here. Officially launched in 2003, and I've been the chairman of this organization for the last year. Um, we're going to talk about the MISTEM theory, which is the, uh, the process trilogy. So there's two things that we're going to talk about uh, in this. So two different trilogies we talk about. And, and what are those? There's the pre-field the on-field, and the post-field. So pre-field is that planning and mitigation part, right? What are we going to need to have in place before we go? On-field, what needs to take place to manage this chaos? And then post-field, how do we end up you know, taking care of the people that went? Maybe there's psychological issues. Did we work ourselves out of a job? Is there ongoing things that need to be taken care of? And there's some scriptures there. We won't go into all of this, but, it, uh, but you can jot it down if you want to, talking about what is the participant trilogy? Who is it that's going? Um, there's those that send. Maybe they're not there, but they're funding it. Maybe it's family members that are letting their spouse go overseas. There's those that are actually the goers, the volunteers, or as some people call them, the goer guests. Uh, and then there's the receivers, people on the ground that are that are receiving that hopefully are... are um, have a good local network to work through. And those scriptures kind of highlight all of that. So we remember the process trilogy, pre-field, on-field, and post-field, and then we got senders, goers, and receivers. And we'll see a big grid on this, and this is something that Wayne Sneed, who's on our um, uh, committee and who actually chairs the Alliance for Excellence in Short-Term Missions, developed. And we can look at this in grid fashion. So if we look at the first part of it, we have... Pre-field, and we need to see how that relates to the senders. 
the sending supporters, the sending entity. You can look at the on-field for those same participants and the post-field. And then what about the, the goer guest leaders, you know, the, the, the people that are actually taking the teams onto the field or those volunteers, which they call the goer guest followers uh, in this uh, example, both the pre, on, and post-field, and then the host receivers. There might be a field facilitator, which may be a U.S. missionary that's based in Haiti, for instance, um, or it could be actually uh, a Haitian pastor or local ministry, and the intended receptors, which really are, for medical people, these are our patients that we're actually trying to take care of. It may also involve those that are in the church that are working there because we may be able to minister to their lives as well. And there was young one, one young man that I was able to do some counseling with that had nothing to do with our original uh, experience there. And I didn't think that I had really made that much of a difference. But when I came back in a second time and he saw me at the airport, he was so thrilled to see me. And he said, man, you said something to me. I can't remember what it was, but it really made a difference. And, uh, you know, it was one of those kind of moments where there are other things that will take place if we, if we plan accordingly and we look for the opportunities when we're there. And, again, that takes place both pre, on, and post-field. So this gives us just kind of a grid to think through. And there's lots of things that can go into that. And we'll talk about... Um, some of the uh, key quality indicators as we talk about the seven standards of excellence. And so we talk about how, how do we do a short-term mission, and, and specifically here, disaster relief. Um, we're going to do it by following seven standards, God-centeredness and empowering partnerships. So that's going to be kind of the philosophical background of it. And the actual kind of hands-on is we're going to do this by, by mutual design. So we're not just doing the Western mindset, but we're going to mutually design something with our field partners to be able to do something that's culturally appropriate, like we talked about. We're going to have comprehensive administration, qualified leadership, appropriate training, and thorough follow-up. So when we create a psychiatric or psychological issue in one of our team members that went and saw something horrific, we don't just abandon them when we get back to the airport back home, but we have post-field follow-up, counseling, whatever we need to do for that. Um, all of this, there'll be a website at the end of a few more slides here. All of this is available um, on the website at stmstandards.org. So um, you can jot down notes that you want to, um, but you'll also be able to follow uh, all of this on the website as well. And we make that available. It, it, it's a membership organization where we have a seal of approval for short-term sending entities that want to say, yes, we meet the standards. Uh, we ascribe to these, and we actually do peer review with them to show that they're meeting them. But we make these available for anyone that wants to incorporate them in what they're doing because we feel that they're that important. And so you can just go and, and see that. That website will actually look even better in a few weeks because we're redesigning it all as we speak. So how do we do God-centeredness? These are what we call key quality indicators. An excellent short-term mission seeks first God's glory in his kingdom and is expressed through our purpose centering on God's glory and his ends throughout our entire STM process. Through our lives, sound biblical doctrine, prayer, godliness. We don't have to go through every single key quality indicator um, since we'll make these things available to you, but also our methods. And so what we're showing is that each one of these has some key components in terms of how do we accomplish these things. And through our methods, we're doing things biblically and culturally appropriately, and we're going to bear spiritual fruit. Empowering partnerships. Well, how do we do that? Through healthy, interdependent, ongoing relationships where our primary focus is on the intended receptors, the people that we're going to minister to. It's not about whether we get to see everything that we wanted to see on this trip. 
Although we usually work that in for our volunteers, right? We give them a day to go shopping and support the local economy, maybe a day of sightseeing or something like that when it makes sense. But in disaster relief, you might get there and all, all you see is uh, a lot of mess, uh, maybe some smoke and diesel fumes. And I joke with my wife. My wife is from Costa Rica, and it's a beautiful country, but we always work in the difficult places and the tough neighborhoods. And I always joke with her, the only thing I know about Costa Rica is broken glass, diesel fumes, and lots of rain. You know, because we never get out to see the beautiful places. Um, but that may be what you're faced with in disaster relief is the focus is on our receptors. But the plans should benefit all participants. And we need mutual trust and accountability. We need to know that we're not going to go down there and create a situation for, for Pastor Pierre or, or whoever we're working with. That when we leave, they have to face their people every single day and go, you know, that group that was here did a terrible job. But guess what? They're going to blame Pastor Pierre. They're not going to blame our group. So we need to make sure that we're working with mutual trust and accountability and empowered partnerships philosophically, but also in how we design. Because in, when we design this, we want to use methods and activities that are going to be aligned to the long-term, long-term strategies of the partnership. Okay, so maybe we're going in to provide that immediate disaster relief, but what happens to that patient that we give a surgery to today that's going to need a six-week post-operative follow-up, and probably even longer, Right? We need to have a plan for that. So who's going to be here next week? Who's going to be here the week after that? Who's going to be here in six weeks or six months? So those are the thoughts that we need to have. How about the volunteers that are going with us, their ability to, to implement their part of the plan? So if I'm taking an orthopedic surgeon in or plastic surgeon in, how are they going to actually be able to treat patients? Um, they might need to do more general medicine, and maybe they'll know that going in, and we can work that out, and that's part of the plan. Or maybe I need to find a way that they can actually use a dermatome to do a skin graft on somebody that needs it. And there are ways of being creative and doing that in an environment where maybe you only have power intermittently. You might be able to use a scuba tank, get it filled while you have power, and then be able to use that pressure to run their dermatomes later. Are they going to have light for the operating room, or do we need to take those things with them? That's part of this plan. Or maybe we can work with a local partnership in a hospital on the ground that has some of those things available. How about our receiver's ability to implement their part of the plan? So an example, we went to Guatemala to do disaster relief this year after the floods and the volcano uh, hit, and we went in to work with um, uh, one of our partner organizations, actually someone that I met through this, uh, these meetings initially. We were going to help a, a doctor on the ground there that has an excellent ministry that he does. But we also had a ministry that does feeding and and uh, water distribution that wanted to help, and they needed a partnership. They had more resources available than what their own usual partners could take. So we said, yeah, you bet. We'll, we'll take you along with us. We'll show you Dr. Eric's work. And they went along with us, saw that, and decided that they would be able to provide him you know, food, water, things that the local community needed. But what they didn't realize, that I could see having this experience of working in these relationships is that now he has to somehow use his vehicle to transport the food to this community, take his time, get his volunteers or get his helpers to do that. That's created a need in our host receiver. So we worked through that process to be able to get funding for him to be able to buy fuel and to be able to do the short term and then work on how do we take care of this community in the long term, what's going to be transformational for that neighborhood. So we have to realize that we create a lot of problems in what we're doing comprehensive administration. 
truthfulness and promotion, finances and reporting. How much money is getting given to different agencies doing work in Haiti, and is that money really getting to where it needs to be? And is it getting spent on appropriate things? Or how much of programming costs is really something that is truly administration? How truthful are we being in that? And there are different watchdog agencies for that, where you can look at the 990 returns for charities and get a pretty good idea from that, or go to guidestar.org or some of the other um, watchdog groups to see that. But we need to be honest in what we're doing and how we're spending um, the money that comes into us. But we also need appropriate risk management. You can't dial 911 in those early days in Haiti because that system doesn't exist and nobody's going to come and help you. Do our volunteers really know what they're getting into? I mean, you need to have appropriate risk management. Do you have kidnap and ransom uh, plan in place? Um, You can't buy insurance for that. You can buy reimbursement situation kind of arrangements for that. But what happens if one of your team members um, gets kidnapped? What are you going to do? Um, what do you do with your team members that all have cell phones, and particularly maybe young, young uh, you, you know, youth teams that are going, and they can just call home and say, guess what, somebody just got kidnapped. And now it's on CNN, and you haven't even had a chance to work through your process. So do you have some kind of arrangement and risk management for cell phone usage or communications from your team members? You know, those are things that need to take place. And there's lots of good training out there. And, uh, you know, there, there are books in the exhibitor's um, booths, um, I know Deeper Roots is over there. There's a couple others. CMDA has some books available. And you, you can look for the very resources you need because maybe you do good on the pre-field um, but not as good on the post-field follow-up or debriefing for your teams. There's great resources available for all of this. So you find where your weaknesses are. In risk management, there's lots of good uh, stuff out there and things that can be used. So, so look towards that. I'm trying to figure out how to make this not quite as dry when we go through all these boring KQIs. How about qualified leadership? Do you have leaders that have good character? Are they skilled? Do they have their appropriate values? Who are you sending your teams with? And sometimes the tail wags the dog because, you know, organizations make their funding by sending teams, and they've got to send teams, and maybe they don't have appropriate leadership on all those teams. And I've experienced that as a volunteer on teams where I didn't want to go back to work with an agency because they didn't take care of their people very well. And so we need to have the qualified leaders and train them appropriately and uh, to be able to lead people overseas. And then that training needs to be appropriate. So we're preparing and equipping our participants, and it needs to be biblical, it needs to be appropriate and timely, but it needs to be ongoing as well. Again, we talk about the three different time Uh, phases in that, and qualified trainers. Maybe that's why our leaders don't know how to take care of people because they haven't gotten good training or they weren't trained by a real qualified trainer. And then thorough follow-up. So comprehensive debriefing, this takes place before you go. What are the rules? What's okay? What's not okay? We have, um, we specifically even talk about things like constipation or things that might occur when you're there that it's okay to come and talk to a leader about because we'll expect these things to happen. Or it's okay to tell your your roommate that, hey, you know what, snapping your gum is driving me crazy. Because we tell people, this stuff is going to come up, and so don't worry about it. When it happens, deal with it. Talk to each other. If you can't resolve it between each other on minor stuff, come and talk to us. So we prepare our people in advance that that things are going to happen. And it it really makes it easy. I mean, we, we joke about it. 
we have different techniques for it as well. And we call it, uh, one, of the, one of the things I've written on is called the AHA principle. It's attitude, heart, and adaptability. You know, so somebody might say, man, do we have to eat rice and beans again? Right? Very culturally inappropriate and insensitive thing to say. And that might be the best meal they can actually provide you. And you don't have to hammer on them or give them a big lecture. You just go, aha. And they know, oh, yeah, we had that in training, attitude, heart, and adaptability. Right? So that's something that you can use on that. And it needs to be throughout the whole life cycle. So how do we apply this, like, specifically to Haiti? Um, you know, why did we go? And, and I told the first group earlier today that, you know, for two days God broke my heart and I was crying for a nation and a people that I didn't know anything about. And for no good reason other than the God was moving my heart to say we needed to respond. And so when I called our uh, rapid response team members, particularly one fire captain that's, that's uh, very well grounded and, and, and the guy you want with you, he's like MacGyver on the field, um, and he said, I think we're supposed to go too, so, so let's go. But you need to have the, the right motives, um, but you also need to make sure you have appropriate resources as well. Um, so funding, we worked through our own network and our own partners. We partnered and provided Mercy Ships with um, first response because they couldn't get their advance team in for a couple of weeks. Because we have good partnership with them and have worked together, and because we were going to be fully committed to the immediate rapid response, anybody that wanted to volunteer services, we routed to them because they had a better network to take care of that while all of our people are on the field. Um, and so that was a partnership that we utilized. We worked with Convoy of Hope, who helped uh, provide us with vehicles and transportation. They were doing f- uh, food and water distribution, but we were able to t- keep their team healthy that were down there as well. And we were able to kind of broker those deals. Of course, ourselves, Mission of Hope that was on the ground there, working out of their compound. And it was, it was a network of people that got us through. So we needed to use the Latin America Child Care and King's Castle people in the Dominican Republic, pay their people to drive us over, to bring fuel in, uh, make arrangements. And we did this all through known network and people that we had worked with before. And that's why these kind of meetings are great to be able to get together and meet other people and talk about what kind of resources you might be able to share in the future. Because that, when the disaster happens, then you're ready to go. So initially, we were, we were first response, but like we talked about, we had to find God's miracle in the house, which were the medications. My man Jude that helped us out, um, different practitioners that came together, and then working with the military and some other partnerships that took place while we were there. Um, and then we phased into collaboration methods and process with the UN and Pan American Health Organization, because once an adequate number of physicians and field hospitals came on board, and we watched it happen where you're going from four referral uh, hospitals to eight to 16 to 24 to 36, obviously the situation is changing. And so we, we adapted with that as well, and then ultimately equipped those on the ground to carry on uh, without us. So we showed them how to get the medicines in the country, how the process works, how the paperwork works, and to get them on the right uh, registers to do that. STMstandards.org are there. There's also some resources um, that are listed. The current website's a little harder to navigate. That'll get better in the next few weeks. Um, but there are some of what we have, what we call approved materials, um, that are some of these pre-field, on-field, post-field, risk management kind of things. So STMstandards.org. Um, we're going to wrap it up with a few last slides. Um, what's our recommended deployment strategy? Well, know that you're called and be ready. Assess the needs, 
that may be a, you know, uh, something that's difficult to do until you actually get there. But the more you do disaster relief and the more experience that you have, the more you'll realize you know, what those needs may be. Obviously, earthquake, it's going to be traumatic injuries, crush injuries, burns, um, infections. Flood is going to be very different, right, because we're going to have water and poo get mixed. So you're going to have those kind of, you know, GI kind of issues, worms and, and different uh, illnesses to deal with. Uh, assess and know your resources and your personnel. And what's your time frame? So how long are you going to be there? And I say use the Orville Redenbacher approach, right? You know, find one thing you do well and do it better than anyone else. Don't try to be all things or extend yourself so far um, because in God's community and God's family, we're one body with many parts. And he'll provide that miracle of collaboration where everything will come together. So stick to what you do well. And then pray and have people praying for you because that's hugely important. And there were doors that were opened that if I told you everything we accomplished in two weeks down there, including programming an example for hospital capacity and capability, a software solution that we did kind of over the phone with our database programmers, that then uh, Shoreland, um, through their Travac system, and Google people were able to look at and go, oh, well, we've got teams of programmers that can do that way better than this. That's like, perfect. But we had to show them what what people needed to be able to go find a place to say, I've got a pediatric burn patient here. Where can I send this patient to be taken care of? And have, a, have an online database to be able to do that rapidly in a disaster scenario. Deploy with a healthy, fit, prepared, and flexible team. So that's why it's important because in some of these austere environments, I went down there in pretty good shape. I'd been running some 5Ks and different things before that. I went to Haiti and I still lost like 22 pounds. And... Uh, you know, if I wasn't in good shape to have dealt with that, with that hot, you know, sweaty, difficult environment, and I was putting miles on my feet every day to get around because uh, even if you had a vehicle, you couldn't get through the traffic around the, the airport. If you were there, you know what that was like, and there was only one way to get somewhere, and that was to walk or to take a moto taxi, which has its own risks, um, which we did at times. Um, partner with others and work, t- work the problem together. Um, that's what Jesus prayed, that they might be one as we are one. And that's why all those partnerships I threw up there, because uh, we did a lot together that none of us could have done on our own. Develop a solid exit strategy so that uh, you know how to teach people to take over for you and then prepare for the next disaster. This is another one here of, the, of a Sudanese leper clinging to the uh, Western aid worker. Know what your commitment is, because if you go there without being ready to understand that you might create issues and, and unfulfilled promises, you have to ask yourself, should we even be there to begin with? Or if we are there, can we deal with the psychological um, difficulties of pulling away from a situation like that? Disaster-specific pitfalls? Going because you want to go, not because you're called to go. And this was an instance when I was in the airport uh, in the Dominican Republic. A gentleman came up to me and said, Hi, my name is so-and-so. Can I get a ride with you to Haiti? I'm like, well, what are you doing here? Well, I'm... Uh, I'm a cop from California, and I just want to go help. And I was like, man, God bless you, but I'm sorry you can't come with me. What hotel are you staying in? I can't tell you, you know, because um, he was there because he wanted to be there, but maybe he shouldn't have been there. He had no network, no place to go. He was going to become part of that problem. Push strategy of inappropriate resources, right? So expired, unsorted, worthless medication. We create a second disaster. An experience in Bosnia... It took six months and thousands of man hours 
for people to determine what was even in the containers that were showing up. Most of it was worthless to the situation, like we talked about those urinary catheters. Um, but, man, it's great for the for the, the people in the states that need to get their gifts in kind out, and they can say, we distributed all this, and it looks really great on your reports. And then you don't have to pay $2,000 per ton for incineration of some of it was worthless ointments that were expired that then they had to deal with in their own country. So push strategy is great in the early days. We just need to get in some stuff. But we should switch over to a pull strategy where we're saying we need tetanus, we need this kind of antibiotic, we need these kind of bandages. That's the better experience. Lowering our practice standards or inappropriate roles, people doing things they shouldn't be doing, ordinarily wouldn't be doing, that doesn't mean that we, there's not some of that rule bending that you need to do um, and being creative. But uh, I shouldn't be doing neurosurgery because I'm not trained to do neurosurgery. And the patient deserves at least comfort care and, and not to be part of an experiment or a laboratory. Um, bribery, it's wrong. It also disempowers small ministries. And I saw an organization over there routinely just pays bribes. And guess who can't get their containers out? The ones that can't afford to pay bribes or don't pay bribes. And so it's an inappropriate behavior. Criminal behavior. Remember the orphans that were getting just kind of rushed on out of Haiti? That didn't work so well. Um, you think you're doing the right thing, but, but maybe check that. Lack of proper risk management for yourself or team members or for your recipients. Um, do you have malpractice insurance? We did. We paid to have malpractice insurance before we even went in through an offshore company through the U.K., and at least it provides some guarantee that if we do something that's inappropriate for a patient, they can be compensated for that. Most organizations don't do that in medical missions, but it's one of our best practice standards. We're letting your team members know what they should do. Photography. What about dignity and human rights things? The pictures I've shown in this, uh, only a couple of them were of me. The others I was were, are public Internet kind of pictures that are there because I have a real issue with uh, we do need to have promotional materials, but did we get consent, informed consent from the person we took pictures of, or are we using those pho photographs appropriately? And my philosophy is if you're going to use those photographs in promotion, you should be committed to the long-term well-being of that person and of that community. And you didn't just rush in, work a couple days, you got all these pictures, you come back out, you tell great stories. Um, just be real careful with that stuff because um, you wouldn't necessarily want that done in your own household where people come in and take a lot of pictures of you and the next thing you know it's up on your website. The entire world can see that. And we'll face some of these people someday in heaven. We should be appropriate with how we do this. Creating dependency or paternalism versus building indigenous capacity. We should be getting these communities healthy and able to carry on after us and not just create some dependency. There are some other things that we talk about as well, being fit, um, being involved because we're called and ready, prepared, the basic and advanced disaster life support through some mentorships, having those networks, team safety and security comes first, and don't become part of the problem. Be ready to go self-contained or work with an organization that has resources there. They have a guest house. They expect you to be there. Um, and be prepared for the worst, but pray for the best. And always give your utmost for those that you serve and for the Lord. Best practices. And realize that even though you feel good because you're ready to go home, you did what was right, mission really isn't completed because it's ongoing. Thanks for staying awake. I think we ended right on time. It was a lot of material, so sorry, we just pounded through it. But that website will help you. And I'll hang out here for a few minutes if you have any questions.